Hello and welcome to Between Two COOs, where phenomenal chief operating officers come to share their knowledge, advice, and at the very end, a crazy story. I'm your host, Michael Koenig, and I'm excited to welcome our guest, Art Harding, COO of People AI. People AI is an AI-powered revenue intelligence platform that's crossed the billion-dollar valuation mark with $200 million in venture capital funding from the likes of Andreessen Horowitz, Lightspeed, Iconic, and Acadian Ventures. Art has an incredible track record of taking companies from $50 million to $1 billion in annual revenue, in part through his leadership in global sales services and operations teams at companies like Symantec, VMware, Riverbed Technologies, New Relic, and now at People AI. Welcome, Art. Thanks for being here. I'm excited to have you on. Thanks, Michael. Well, Art, normally I'd start off by asking about a guest's path to the COO role. We're going to get there. But before we do, we have to talk about something that's on top of mind for all of us, and that's Russia's horrific war against Ukraine. Many of us have family, friends, and colleagues in Ukraine, and we're worried for their safety and the safety of their loved ones. And I know that this has been true for your team at People AI, which is founded and led by a Ukrainian, Oleg Rajinsky. Oleg mentioned in a LinkedIn post that starting back in November, People AI have taken actions to prepare for this eventuality to protect your team members and their families. Can you take us behind closed doors and tell us a little bit about those operations? Sure. Um, and uh, thanks for asking, Michael. You know, it's um, never pleasant. And I think, unfortunately, um, we've all been developing more coping mechanisms and readiness skills over the last few years as it, as it feels like we've had one macro event after another. Um, this one is a, a very different one. Um, obviously, I would first start off by condemning any act of, of war um, on any party's part, um, in particular when it hits close to home for companies like PeopleAI, where our founder is Ukrainian. We also all have um, team members, um, and obviously those team members have family members, and over the years we've, we've built a relationship with the people of Ukraine at People AI, um, yeah, I think about people that had come to uh, meetings or revenue kickoffs, walking around San Francisco with them, hearing about their lives in Ukraine, and then watching how quickly that can all be upended is is a tough thing to deal with. Um, <clears throat> you know, as we were getting ready to to chat this morning, um, we talked about, hey, it sounds like you all were on top of this very early. Um, and, you know, I think one of the things I would want to make sure that I do is speak about the whole subject with the appropriate amount of humility. Um, as I mentioned, the leadership team I'm a part of right now, for better or for worse, um, went through the pandemic and the events of the last few years together and a set of skills that I didn't read in the fine print of the of the leadership description was um, coping with situations or macro events that you might not have anticipated. Um, maybe you've read about before, you've talked about as you went through business continuity and DR plans, but suddenly it becomes real. Um, so I, I think one of the things is, um, we are uh, just culturally as a company, we're, we're a bias for action company. We like to plan for multiple scenarios. We know we like to evaluate what would be a worst case situation, a midpoint and an ideal scenario when we make large decisions. And this, this situation was no differently. Ironically enough, just as we were coming out of the pandemic, just as we were starting to get the first signal of things becoming normal, here we were getting some early warning signals um, from the types of people that are, are tracking these things. We started hearing the gurgling in the news. And so, you know, for us, it, it really always starts first and foremost, no, no pun intended, it does start with the people. Um, and so there's a lot of distractions, a lot of things you could choose to focus on. Um, but we thought the most important thing was to sit down with our employees, both those the ones in Ukraine, as well as the ones not directly 
um, potentially in, in the impact zone and explain what was possible um, that based on the information that we had that could happen, um, our readiness for it uh, as we were, any business has business continuity and DR plans, et cetera. You have to be very aware of you know, obviously where your technology runs, how it's secured, et cetera. Um, so after you know some of those fundamentals, which, which thankfully were already in place, it allowed us to move to our employees and really communicate to them early, um, give them a clear set of options and really encourage them to have as much information as they could as possible and give them a set of options. For instance, relocating out of the country. This was months before the conflict kicked off. Um, and, and of course, you know, you never want to, not want to, you can't force people um, to make decisions about their personal lives. But what we can do um, is support them with a set of conditions that allows them to make different choices. So um, we were very clear and upfront about what those choices and options were. Um, a number of people took us up on those options. Some others decided that they wanted to evaluate and watch the condition unfold more over time. Um, as conditions deteriorated, some people changed some of the decisions that they made and wanted to invoke different options later on in the process. And yet others um, have heroically, as we've seen in public media channels, but also some of us have gotten to experience privately, really been amazing um, in terms of, you know, we have... Uh, GNA resources and, and people working on functions that are still, you know, driving the business um, and, and doing um, out of their choice um, something that they want to do um, as both a source of pride and, and potentially maybe in some instances distraction. Um, and then we have others that have decided they want to more, be more directly involved um, in fighting for their country or helping with relief efforts or other things. And of course, um, they've got our support as well. So you start with the people. Um, then making sure that um, you've got clear roles and responsibilities across the leadership team um, so that not everyone is focused on the same thing. So um, my CEO and I, um, which I'm sure we'll talk about today, it's critical that the COO and CEO have complementary skills, shared views of, of how to tackle problems. Um, and he and I agreed that obviously with his background, he'd be able to add a ton of value um, with regard to what's going on in Ukraine. And that could add a lot of value in focusing on our employees and customers. And we've repeated the mantra for a lot of our employees that the best thing we can do is to ensure that our teammates have a company and jobs and customers and prospects to come back to um, that we cover while they're out, but that we stay focused on the job at hand, um, you know, nine to five or nine to nine, whatever your workday is, and that we keep pursuing prospects and trying to grow the business while doing the right thing by the people. So it's really starting with the people, um, then ensuring that you've got clear rules and responsibilities for who's on point for your customers, keep your investors um, informed, and then obviously continuing to pursue prospects. And then we also made a point to encourage our employees and give them clear, vetted, broader communities where if they wanted to participate more than maybe their day job was allowing them to and they had energy they wanted to pour into this, to encourage them to do so. But after um, they got their work done and the job done, um, we had people focused on the humanitarian side of it for the company, and we needed just as many people um, driving the business and covering any of those holes. And, and thus far, it's really been amazing to watch our People Org, um, which is People AI's HR department um, plus, um, step up the partnership that they got in their leadership with our leadership team, with our operations team, um, everything from how to pay people. Um, where they are, keeping track of them and their families has been been quite an effort on everyone's part. Well, it sounds like there's a great complementary relationship between Oleg and yourself. You spoke a little bit about how that has played out during this conflict. What about in other areas of the business and perhaps during peaceful times? 
Yeah, um, it's interesting. Um, you know, I met Oleg as a customer um, a few years ago when I ran strategy and operations, go-to-market strategy and operations for New Relic, um, which was an integrated RevOps, like um, go-to-market strategy and operations org. Uh, People I was a very early stage company, I think probably Series B at the time, if I recall correctly, um, just getting their initial set of large customers. Um, and it was during the sales process when I, when the sales rep first was articulating what people that I could do, and I started asking questions about why we weren't doing more, bigger, faster, which quickly got me an appointment <laughs> with our CEO. Um, and I had always been accused of being a high energy person over the years, which I wore very proudly until I met Oleg and realized that I had nearly scratched the surface, um, and that what I thought was energetic was was Oleg's, you know, middle gear, um, which was fascinating. As someone who'd been in the industry for 20 plus years, largely at large enterprise customers um, that I participated in their growth. Whenever I hear an intro that says art led to, you know, I definitely was a leader in some regards, but I definitely can't take credit for a lot of those companies. I was just uh, along for the ride with a lot of uh, other amazing people. It was the first time I had seen a company at that size um, and seen someone so committed to something that I also believed in. I thought sales and marketing was changing. New Relic was on the front edge of agile software development. And I couldn't help but draw these parallels between what New Relic was doing for the software world, AppDynamics and Datadog, all the folks that have changed the way we build software over the last decade or so, and asking why we weren't applying similar principles to go to market. We had poor instrumentation, we were building annual plans like a waterfall method, and I thought, geez, isn't the go to market organization of the future more agile, uh, better instrumented? And as long as we're depending upon this, um, you know, human manual effort, it's gonna hold us back. And um, that's really where Oleg and I started was not that we had certain behavioral characteristics that we saw were very different people. Um, we're very different ages. We have very different backgrounds. He grew up in Ukraine. I grew up in New England. Um, but we had a shared vision of what we thought the solution to some of the current state problems looked like. And I think that's, you know, I'm certainly not here to prescribe um, what people will develop as common ground with others. But I found one of the strongest common ground is passion for solving a shared problem with each other. You can really maybe find ways to experience different personalities and different ways of doing things if your North Star is the same, right? And I think that's really where Oleg's and my relationship began was we saw the world very similarly. We saw the problems very similarly. We were excited about solving them together. So how does that manifest itself within the rest of the organization? I think about how we communicate to the employees, how we communicate to each other, how we communicate to our investors, customers, and prospects, like just kind of how we articulate what it is we're doing. Um, I think there's a couple things. One, if you're going to partner with people, in this instance, COO, CEO, maybe it's a head of sales and a head of marketing, maybe it's R&D partnering with go-to-market, I've always found one of the bigger challenges in, in kind of low-hanging fruit in terms of source of disagreement are the ta- are people's what I call default timeframes. Everyone has a default timeframe that they're most comfortable existing or operating in. And the first wave of, of lack of alignment or people being disconnected, I usually will pick at, hey, Michael, what time frame are you talking about? When you say in the short term, the most important thing we need to do, your short term, if you're in R&D, could be a year. If you're a serial entrepreneur, short term could be this weekend, right? And and so in terms of 
I think one of the biggest things that, that Oleg and the rest of the leadership team and I had to iron out when we first got together was who communicates what, when, and at what altitude. Um, and we started to think of the leadership team as more of a symphony versus some hierarchical, you know, the, the king speaks and then the, the prince speaks and the queen speaks and all the different royal subjects from around the land. Um, it's not that that communication was isolated to a specific role. It was what is the conversation? Are we talking to an analyst? Are we talking to the company? Are we talking about last, last quarter? Or are we talking about the strategy? And I, I think we've done a great job of figuring out which of our executives most naturally communicate in that time frame. Um, and we try to eliminate those pronouns during our leadership meetings about short term, mid, long term, et cetera, and get specific, right? And break these, these pronouns and editorials down into specifics that we can action. Um, so I think that would be the first one is clear rules and responsibilities. When I speak on an all hands, I think people are starting to expect business performance last quarter, next quarter. When Oleg opens up, um, opens up they're, they're listening for solar powered flying autonomous vehicles, right? Um, they, they know the future is coming. That's the perfect divide between the visionary CEO and the day-to-day nitty gritty uh, operational aspect, the operational leader there and the COO. Um, you just described this as a symphony, right? Who, who communicates what, when? And for symphony, it's all about alignment, being aligned, knowing which instruments play and, and what piece of music everyone is playing. Now, in terms of alignment in a previous conversation that we had, and I'm paraphrasing here, you mentioned that it's really time to move on from focusing on sales and marketing alignment and that it's all about integration now. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, you know, I think... As we think about the symphony analogy, you talk about how does this um, manifest itself, and I went right to communications. There, there's one other area this manifests itself, which I think is applicable to the relationship between sales and marketing, which is, I think, as a senior leader, particularly for a CEO, and Oleg's done a great job of this, and as someone who's a cross-functional leader, I feel this is important for me, for myself. It starts with respect and understanding. So when you talk about you know, how do these different perspectives, timeframes, horizons, or natural operating rhythms manifest themselves? When I think about the calories that the industry or as we as professionals spend on trying to align friction across different departments, when department A has not even taken the time to really understand what it's like to walk a mile in department B's shoes and how quickly we are to point out what we want out of this partnership before we set out to understand what's actually going on, what trade-offs that department needs to make. Um, so when you talk about how do two very different people come together and how does that play out, it actually first and foremost starts with respect. And I think one of the biggest things I've learned um, in working with my leadership team and with Oleg is how to be just curious enough about the types of trade-offs that an R&D team needs to make um, or the implications to a post-sales group when you you know rush to market with a product and are successful selling it. That it's very difficult to do anything in these highly integrated enterprises alone. Um, and it's amazing how, um, you know, success has many friends, but failure is an orphan. <laughs> you know, how, how quickly we uh, um, are, you know, uh, to point out what other people could have or should have done to us, which brings us to, to marketing and sales alignment. Um, it came out of one of our AEs. He was d- doing a disco discovery call with one of our prospects. Um, with our CMO and talking to them. And he literally just said off the cuff, when I hear marketing and sales alignment, it makes me cringe. And um, especially if it's alignment for the purposes of 
I, I know you don't want credit, but you know, simply the performance of our investments. If you're still trying to align marketing and sales at this point, you're actually starting to fall behind the organizations that have already aligned or have alignment um, and are, they're moving on to sales and marketing integration. Um, and I think it goes beyond sales and marketing. I think we can also talk about sales and post-sales. But if you have functional groups that are still trying to quote align, that means they're probably still debating things like shared goals, shared vocabulary, um, business process integration. And these are the fundamentals um, required if you want to unlock any of the leverage that we see great companies unlock with software automation data. The software automation and data are not what deliver the value. It's the application of these things to a new way of thinking, um, to new partnerships that, that may not have existed in the past. So I, I really think if you find yourself managing and mitigating a lot of alignment, collaboration, um, conflict, friction um, at the C-level or SVP level between departments, um, the, I think you're starting to lose more and more ground um, between these organizations that are working on tighter integration of these functions. That makes sense. If you're just working on the table stakes aspects to what a team looks like, what a cohesive company looks like, you're going to be falling behind. Now, you mentioned the word friction. Oftentimes, I hear the relationship between sales and marketing is having a healthy friction between the two. To be frank, I've never understood it. Why does there need to be friction at all? Can you give me a concept of like where your mind's at? How, how have you thought about that? I'm assuming you've heard it. And uh, I'd just love to hear your thoughts there. Yeah. Um, you know, when I think about sales and marketing um, and the boundaries there's there's that they've been managing historically, you know, you've got the cliches where sales wants to know what marketing is doing for them and marketing would like to know what sales is doing with what they've provided. And I do believe, I think sometimes my um, altitude on this topic can make people think I don't want to measure all of the inputs about the handoffs. We absolutely want the measurements. The question is, what do you do with that measurement um, and what is that measurement in service to? Uh, you know, I've, I've always found that some of the best problems to challenges start with customers and prospects. And I think that the buyer and customer journey from the moment someone takes interest in our product and service to when they start to do some discovery, maybe self-serve, to when they enter into some sort of a nurturing and sales cycle process is a very precious time for the customer. And I think the North Star for your sales and marketing teams should be that buyer and customer experience that may be the first time or maybe a signal that you've served them well in the past and it's a re repeat buy. And if you elevate the prospect and customer and their journey and how they interact with your with your company as the North Star versus the performance of your demand gen engine or the close rate of stage two opportunities, those metrics are meant to feed something. And when we as leaders fail to articulate that the star of the show is the buyer and the customer, that's when the departments start to fall into well, I don't know what Michael's doing over there in sales. I gave him X number of leads and he hasn't done Y and Z with them. Or sales saying, I can't remember the last time I got what I wanted from marketing. Um, I think if you can quickly break that conversation down and say, hey, how is this confusion impacting the buyer and customer? And how would we know if we were doing better? And just really bringing people's attention back to the, to the customer um, and your prospect, I, I think is one of the, the first things. 
Um, I don't know if you're looking for more specifics on that. But. No, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. It's almost as if there is no healthy friction, right? If there is that friction, then we're not focused on what we're actually trying to do here. We're just kind of looking out for our own sort of micro KPIs versus the actual buyer experience and customer happiness of it. Well, so I do think there's some healthy friction, but I'll give you a very, I have a very clear definition of this. And mm. I apologize to NASCAR fans everywhere because I have not earned the right to make a, a joke about their sport, but I, I'm not a NASCAR fan. And then I tell people it's probably because I, I think I, I either don't understand the sport or I might get bored. And when I think about friction, um, I think about a little bit like a race. The first time around the track, oh, well, that was interesting. Second time around the track, I think I've seen this before. By the third time I'm experiencing the same type of friction, my patience goes out the window and I would try and turn the NASCAR in the other direction just to see what might be going on in, in another loop. Um, and so, you know, we're going to encounter friction. We're going to encounter friction that was brought in from competitors. We're going to brought in frictions from the market. We're going to have friction from new hires. If you're scaling a business, the friction is going to be constant. The question is, can you evolve beyond it and can you earn the right to solve new problems? If, if, any of your listeners have been in a high growth environment before, they can all relate to the fact that actually it may not be just restricted to high growth. Rarely do you come to work and all the lights are green, the knobs are on go, the switches are on yes. You come in and you sit in your coffee, you're like, whoa, okay, everything is in, in, is in perfect condition. So when we come to work in the morning, we know that we're gonna have opportunities to solve problems and challenges. So the only question is which ones? I prefer nuance. I prefer new ones that are a signal of progress. When the friction becomes repetitive and you just keep solving on the same challenges, it becomes a grind, right? And that's where we need to evolve beyond that. But it's not so we can fix all the problems. It's that we can earn the right to solve the next set of them. That makes a lot of sense. And I think we'll have to introduce perhaps an alternative to NASCAR where we do one lap forwards, then everyone does 180, does the next lap backwards, and then we just switch back and forth. That could be quite interesting. Although maybe the 10th time around, we would still lose your interest. So let's take a step back and let's talk about the first question I normally ask, which is, look, Art, what's your story? How'd you end up as COO? If you look at the experience that you have, it, it almost seems like a CRO role would be more fitting given all of the commercial and, and go-to-market experience. How'd you end up in the COO position, especially at, at People? Um, well, I think it's, it's interesting, Michael, because I think I came across your podcast probably very similar to many other COOs where you, know, you start asking, what is the job? What is the job description? What's the most common manifestation of it and at some point you get comfortable with the discomfort that um, and I recently shared with my wife of 25 plus years I said I've decided to view my job as the most interesting job in the world versus the most undoable job in the world or at the surface area because if I viewed it that way there would be a very closed you know contracted mindset so I, I have decided that the COO job is the most interesting job that any person could have out there right um, a good place to start the conversation. I think the second point is I never set out to be COO. I never had it. I'm actually shocked when I have people come to me and say, hey, will you be my mentor? I want to be a COO. I'm like, really? I'm like, I didn't know people wanted to be COOs. I, it was never in my career path where I came out of university or college and said, okay, I'm going to be a COO someday. Yeah, and how I how I arrived at, at the, in the COO role, Michael, is um, 
starting in a services background, billable consulting, project management, practice development. I think post sales gives people really good operational rigor. It's hard to run a services business sloppy. The margins are thin. It requires it. But you know, prime, you know, for that reason, the low margins and the hard work, I started getting curious about higher margin businesses. There's no better one than software, um, and you know, made my way into that through the services arms, um, and then into overlay positions, writing statements of work, supporting sales teams, and after doing that long enough, ended up carrying a bag for Symantec and VMware um, with the direct quota carrying responsibility, supporting the overlay teams, etc. After doing that for years, I did miss leadership and I did miss having teams. In particular, I missed doing business internationally and I had an opportunity to join Riverbed um, with their professional services team. And Riverbed really um, blossomed during my time there. And, and I went from a North and South America services leader to a global services leader. Um, and the crescendo of how I ended up into operations was we were acquired by a PE firm um, who as part of that transition asked me to take over sales operations. Um, and I've been in operations ever since. That was about five to eight years ago. Um, and my most recent pivot into customer-facing role was where we started the conversation as a customer of People AI's. I had such a passion for the problem that they were solving that um, this role that I've I've sorted out with Olga and the rest of the E staff um, I'm here at People AI um, has me running our go-to-market and GNA teams, um, and it's been a lot of fun. So that makes a lot of sense. And one of the things that you had mentioned previously was around self-serve, right? Nurturing the, the self-serve and then getting them into more of the sales process, the sales cycle there. We've heard a lot about the term product-led growth versus sales-led growth. And and perhaps I'm, I'm oversimplifying here, but product-led growth is basically just the latest way to refer to that self-service experience with digital products that it's tied together to some sort of viral loop that's designed to get more customers in the door. Whereas sales-led is just that, growth led by sales teams pounding the pavement. How do you think about these in terms of enterprise sales? You talked about this not necessarily being mutually exclusive, having that self-serve aspect. Is there ever a point at which it could all be product-led for enterprise organizations? No, I, you know, I, the short answer is no. Um, I, I think the minute I hear universal, all, everything, never, forever, you know, I hear those types of words. Um, my initial response is unlikely. But usually these trends that we get really excited about in the technology industry, I, I think of them as like glaciers that move through our industry and they, they move through and they make a big impact. But then they eventually melt away and they leave these boulders behind um, of artifacts that are around for some time. And I think one of the most common things, having been acquired, acquired companies, fast growth companies, and you're hiring people from lots of different backgrounds, we all have this temptation to refer to emotion um, or a company. Hey, I worked at Salesforce from this year to that work. I worked at New Relic from this time to that time. I worked at Data. And we... We take that experience, which might have been a phenomenal experience and a great opportunity for you professionally, and then we want to universally port that recipe for success to every company that that we go to. So I would, before you know, I start digging into as an operator or as a leader what the digital experience for my prospects or customers might be versus where humans are going to be interacting or, or our, our teams are going to be interacting with them. You really have to understand what product you're selling. You have to understand what product you're selling, 
who the persona is that's going to make that investment and who the persona is that's going to use the technology. They're not always the same person. What's interesting about PLG is initially, um, as you're driving into a company, the user is voting with their clicks um, or maybe a small transaction dollar. And at some point, you're going to have to uh, penetrate an enterprise economic buyer or somebody looking to make a purchase for enterprise reasons. The priorities of the individual user and the priorities of the business may be very different, and the economic value of what you're doing may be very different. And it is a it is a pivot, um, just as you know companies that do a sales led top down motion need to worry about and drive user adoption and consumption of technology. People who land with PLG, easy come, easy go. People who sign up for trials and onboard very quickly also churn very quickly. And collecting them as a cohort and positioning that to an enterprise company with enterprise features and benefits, by default, is probably out of the wheelhouse of what the original inception or premise of the company was. So you're going to be introducing a new product. You're going to be introducing a new set of features or maybe a new value proposition, regardless of which way you pivot or not even pivot, build upon or expand your business, um, you're going to have to answer those questions. That makes a lot of sense in terms of, I can also imagine those multi-million dollar, multi-year contracts, not necessarily getting signed with a click, but rather, well, maybe through an e-sign software, but rather you definitely want to talk to someone there. You mentioned new products. I know you have a lot of experience with launching new products, preparing the go-to-market function for this. And it's something that tends to get overlooked in terms of just the preparation. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience with that and how you approach it? Well, I think your prior question is a good lead into this, which is, you know, your question was how, how much is technology impacting the buyer and customer journey and how does that manifest itself? And I said, first and foremost, we have to start with what we sell and who we sell it to. Um, that simple question, um, what is it that you're making? What problem are you solving? Who does it solve it for? And who, you know, what pain are you solving for? And who is actually purchasing it can really get lost in the noise of a large scale company as you're hiring people, launching lots of products. And, and a phenomenon that I've experienced firsthand and I've seen time and time again is when you get product market fit that puts a real wind in the sails of a company where it's just growing really quickly on one thing. It could be databases, it could be cloud CRM, it could be you know storage, it could be backup. Think of any company out there that started with one, one product and took off quickly. The question is whether they acquire technology, whether they build it organically or they introduce something new um, or even a new capability, can they do it together? And what I mean by together is do your R&D teams and your go-to-market teams have they moved beyond alignment into integration? So we talked about marketing and sales, right? You know, where, hey, look, at the end of the day, it's to drive pipeline and convert that pipeline into customers. That is a shared responsibility. The, the obsession with attribution, great signals for driving investment, very bad for driving teamwork, right? And so getting sales and marketing to understand that their shared responsibility is to convert ever-expanding pipeline into ever-expanding revenue um, is job one. Um, at a, as a go-to-market leader, whether it's CRO, CO, COO, president. When you're the CEO and you're sitting across R&D and go-to-market functions, I think this same level of integration, like what is a GNA product? When is it complete? When does go-to-market start getting ready? One of my early mentors said, treat content like a product, meaning you got to get your messaging iterating 
while the engineers are iterating on some of the earliest versions of what it is they're building off of their PRDs. And products are not released into the market until you have your first set of customers. You know, I always, I'm always curious why we celebrate the release of software. I, I would think we would want to celebrate the first three customer references and case studies. That's when a product's actually released, when people are actually using it. I'm okay with celebrations along the way. We celebrate building pipeline and go to market. And I would love for engineers to celebrate the accomplishment of having completed code. But the mission isn't there until R&D and go to market are successful in working together and building that pipeline and landing those first customers. So if marketing, enablement are working on the messages for their campaigns, for the enablement programs, pricing is getting ready for packaging, customer success is getting ready for have the impact of renewal contracts. If you start all this after you launch your product, by default, you've delayed your growth. If you can work on these in parallel, then as the engineers celebrate dropping the software, go-to-market is celebrating releasing all of the machinery required that we know results in this success from a go-to-market perspective. What do operations look like at People AI, and how would you characterize them? Well, you know, as I, I often hear people struggle to describe encourage and also maybe frame what operations is at any company, not just people. And it's a little bit of a passion for me having been thrown into it um, later on in my career and really having to depend upon some really amazing leaders in my first year who put me through operations school 101. And there's a couple of things that I learned um, that I feel have been very important around operations. Um, we're not connective tissue. We're not a deli counter. Um, that you just rock up and order whatever sandwich you want, hold the cheese. We're a business partner um, that requires first and foremost leadership. So if you're out there and you're responsible for sales ops or rev ops or you're a COO, your first job is leadership of people. And if I look at a lot of the different cross-functional teams, the leadership element of leading a team of operators um, doesn't seem to bubble up to the top priority as, as I might expect it to or see it in other departments. And that pains me to say it as someone that's been in operations teams, but one of the places I start is with the team um, and, and the quality of the team, the clarity of the team. <clears throat> the second thing is, so first of all, first and foremost, if you're running a leadership, if you're in a leadership seat position in operations, your job is not to be the smartest person in the room. Your job is not to find every mistake in every report. Your job is not to make some C-level executive happy. Your job is to first and foremost lead a function and lead a team. That function, I use this acronym E squared T, has three very specific responsibilities. Drive efficiency, make things faster, cheaper. Improve effectiveness, help us achieve or exceed a goal. Or third, transform us for the future. So when we're asked to invest our time as an operations team in projects or in keeping the lights on, I, I want the team to think about those three elements of course, projects can hit on more than one of those elements, <clears throat> but we're not here doing what I call the you know title executive ranking prioritization scheme, which is the loudest, most important executive gets their projects done and, and the, the, the business is basically triaged and the operational capacity is deployed based on who asks for it versus do we have the composure to understand that we're not just here taking orders, <clears throat> that we actually have a charter, which is driving efficiency, effectiveness, and transformation, and then the third element is with the right leadership, with the right shared mindset in terms of what we do, do we have the courage and integrity to actually manage the boundaries of the capacity we have, prioritize that capacity appropriately? And I don't know if we're the 
connective tissue in operations, but I would like us, I, I always strive for a brand of being the Department of Clarity, <clears throat> which is, do we know where we actually are? Do we know what is before we try to start solving problems? Do we have clear definitions of what success would look like? And then what are the risks that we're willing to expose ourselves to, whether it's timeline risk, budget risk, or execution risk between where we are today and where we need to go? Um, and so... I, I cringe at things like connective tissues, supporting cast, back office, because it really encourages operators to be on their heels, not on their toes. And I think great operating leaders think more like product managers, and they own the product of GNA or go-to-market capabilities. And it's our job to bring those capabilities to market effectively and efficiently, as well as transform them for the future. So you've talked a bit about leadership here. <laughs> And you've described coaching as inspiring for the right to inspect performance and provide timely and meaningful feedback. What do you mean by that? Can you expand, please? Sure. Um, I was at a prior company doing a sales um, methodology launch with some external consultants. Um, and it was interesting how much energy the external consultants in the enablement team put into first communicating the why we were doing this training for people that technically we would all think in their job description, coaching is in their job description, the frontline managers of any sales organization. What's interesting, if you go out and you interview frontline sales managers and you look at the quantity of formalized training program out there today for frontline managers, it's pretty sparse and your their description of their jobs will be pretty varied. And so the, uh, the group we were working with felt very passionate that we needed to really get everyone inspired about coaching first, that yes, we had telemetry, we had metrics, we had measurement, but if they didn't know how to actually use those as a coach, that we weren't going to be successful. Um, and on this tour, I actually ended up blurting out on stage once, like inspection without coaching is micromanagement, right? And, and the consultant was like, can I, can I quote that? Let's write that down. It became, became a one-liner we used as a, as a collective team for a while. But where I got there was I just thought about any coaching experience we've had, whether it's a, a tutor or a fitness instructor or a music coach. I don't hire a guitar coach to tell me I'm bad at the guitar or my financial planner to tell me I'm broke or a fitness trainer to tell me I'm, I'm unhealthy. Um, and when I look at outcome-based coaching, like you either make it kid or you don't, you know, in this sales world out there, here's your quota in the bag and a list of accounts. We'll see you in 90 days. And you know, every 90 days that's in the old uninstrumented world where you talk to people periodically, that made a lot of sense. It was a feast or famine, do or die, you know, make it or make it or don't culture. But now we have a lot more telemetry. We know exactly what's going on. We know exactly who people are meeting with. We know exactly what the formula for success looks like. We know exactly what someone who's ramping and onboarding looks good look like, um, what good looks like. Therefore, our job as, as leaders have changed. It's no longer just about sourcing talent, holding it accountable, and then swapping it out for talent that can get it done, especially if you think about the talent wars that are going on in, in some of the industries today. How well can you coach to leading indicators to a sincere party that actually wants to improve their performance. And um, on this area of having so much telemetry of leading indicators, right? So can you see my spending habits? Can you see my income? Can you start coaching me while there's still time for me to change the outcome? 
Um, if you show up and it's already too late or I'm already being held accountable for some outcome, it can be very demoralizing. And then it's like, what are you here for? Just to, just to read the scoreboard? Thanks. Um, and I think this is particularly challenging for those of us who might not be from the generation where we were getting constant feedback and instrumentation on everything we were doing. I went to college before cell phones, <laughs> you know, and I think we can look at the younger generation and accuse them of being needy for feedback. That's something I'll hear a lot, you know, is, oh, millennials, they, they always want to pat on the head, participation trophies. Another way to look at it is they've grown up in a world where, where and they being a, a generation younger than me, They've grown up in a world where they're getting telemetry and feedback and information about what's going on. And what they want is they're really eager for coaching and feedback to impact the outcome because they've experienced applying leading indicators. They've uh, they've applied um, getting great coaching at just the right moment, which helped them change their trajectory. Um, and so if, if you find yourself being frustrated with the hunger that people have for feedback, um, view it as a hunger for coaching, right? And challenge, we need to challenge ourselves to step up and become better coaches and maybe coach in ways that are new to us because we may have suspected or known things. Activity drives better sales. Meeting with the right people can help you expand an account or grow ASP. It's another thing to actually have the telemetry and be able to offer someone coaching that it seems like, Michael, you are struggling to move from any follow-up meetings with people titled VP or above. Let's unpack that specific skill and go from there. And how do we get you better at that? That's a much more actionable set of coaching for you um, as the leader than me just telling you you missed your number at the end of the quarter. Because the next question is, well, what do I have to do in order to hit my number this coming quarter? Hopefully it's being asked. So that makes a lot of sense in terms of, of how coaching applies to uh, just the process improvement and and improvement in general. So for uh, those folks heading into their first COO role or perhaps a new COO role, what uh, what advice would you have for them as someone who recently walked into that COO role? So the first thing is curiosity is your friend. Um, let go of any concept of command and control. Um, the scope of your the scope of your role, the surface area of your role is a living organism, like a garden. You're not going to come to work any morning and all the plants will be the perfect height and the sunshine will be universally distributed. You're going to be doing something. You're going to be weeding something. You're going to be fertilizing something. So I think first is just have the right mindset that it is not a structured job. It's an unstructured job. Your job is to take chaos and ambiguity and translate that chaos and ambiguity into structure so that others can actually go and deliver um, their talents and skills against that. So you're not just taking ambiguity and chaos and tossing it into a, to an organization that needs to execute. So that'd be the first one is get curious and get comfortable with the chaos and ambiguity. Um, the second one is the role of people leadership. Um, just making sure that you're providing your team's clarity, um, that you are consistent because you're going to be living in an inconsistent world and it would be very easy for people to maybe view you as an inconsistent character. And I think predictability, um, regardless of whether people like it, your version of predictability is a very important component for teams. They want to know that their, their leader has some element of consistency in terms of how you see things, how you make decisions, and how you follow through on those. Um, and then the last one is I just believe, especially if you're in a scaling organization, to pay attention to trust. I think trust has economic value. Low trust environments are more expensive and move slower. High trust environments move faster, cheaper. Um, so I would say be curious, get good at translating chaos into ambiguity, um, 
protect and lead your teams um, and uh, really focusing on trust because you're going to be working across so many different departments. Your say-do ratio has to be in balance um, and your vocabulary needs to be very versatile so that you can connect with, understand, and empathize with lots of different characters. So it's time for my last and favorite question. We've all had those moments where new problems come across your desk and you've thought, I've never seen that before and I never thought I would. Do you have one that you can share with us? Yeah, probably the, the shortest one or the, the, the one that jumps to mind outside of the most recent events, um, obviously with the, the conflict where we started the conversation was uh, I joined People AI the quarter that COVID started and my first week of the job was looking at the new signage for the new offices we were planning to move into um, just as I was starting to practice the words shelter in place and try and understand what that meant. And I remember thinking, is now the time to move into a new office? Is now the time to move into a new office? And having this whole conversation, and I remember our graphic artist holding the brand new sign for the new door, and I'm like, I don't think we're going to be using that, <laughs> that sign. Um, and just having the courage with the rest of the leadership team to be a, a fast mover on the decision to go virtual early. Um, but just the 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 comedic humor of, you know, obviously the pandemic was not funny, but just walking around um, new office spaces in my first couple of weeks on the job. And then the first thing we had to do was figure out how to go remote. Um, it was a little bit of a 180 that, um, that, that I'll always remember. Maybe more so than others, especially because you're evaluating signage. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's fantastic. Thank you for, uh, thank you for sharing and thank you for joining us. I really appreciate it. Where can people go to keep up with you? Uh, the People AI website, uh, People AI LinkedIn page, um, and you can also always find me at art at people.ai. Well, there you go. Thanks for listening to Between Two COOs. I'm your host, Michael Koenig, and a very special thank you to Art Harding for joining us. Tune in next time for our next COO chat on Between Two COOs, and be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. Just visit betweentwocoos.com for more. And if you have a minute, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell others about the show so they can get great advice from phenomenal COOs. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Tune in next time. And until then, so long.